Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Strategy Series. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. It is my honor today to welcome to the program Lieutenant General Tom Coppinger-Sims, who is the Deputy Commander of Britain's Strategic Command, the organization created in 2011 as the Joint Forces Command to better integrate the intelligence, cyber, digital, as well as other functions needed for the United Kingdom military to remain in the forefront of future warfighting. It became Strategic Command in 2019, General Coppinger uh, Sims is an Afghanistan veteran and focused on driving innovation and culture change, uh, whether within Britain's military services, uh, with uh, the uh, United States and across the NATO alliance. And, and a lot of his um, uh, mission uh, is focused on uh, better integrating uh, capabilities. Sir, thanks so very much for joining us. I very much enjoyed our conversation at DSCI and particularly pleased you can join us on the program. Thanks, Fargo. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, an, an absolute pleasure. Before we get started, our series of conversations with leading strategists and thinkers is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, Andy Marshall, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. This strategy series is not affiliated with the Andrew W. Marshall Foundation. Um, sir, uh, thanks uh, again uh, for uh, joining us. Uh, and I wanted to start uh, with uh, a topic that almost every one of our conversations with senior leaders uh, involves, which is to try to get a more nuanced sense of some of the lessons uh, from uh, Russia's war on Ukraine now that it, uh, we're almost entering the two-year mark of that. Um, what are the lessons from your uh, standpoint, the ones that really stand out now after two years? And you know, what are sort of indicative of broader changes in warfare and what not, because there's a tendency of some to conflate what's happening in Afghanistan, in Afghanistan for example, to what an Indo-Pacific war would look like, and they would be very different. What, what are the things that stand out to you as the most nuanced stuff that you think people sometimes miss, aside from the sort of very surface unmanned bits and other things? Thanks, Fargo. So I think your your last point there is, is worth emphasizing. So my boss... Um, General Sir Jim Hockenhull has a phrase that if you if you squint hard enough, you can probably learn any lesson you want to learn from from Ukraine. So I think that's the the first point to make is we need to be really careful about what we do take away from the Ukraine conflict and what we think will endure and apply to the next conflict. Otherwise, we just fight the last war. Um, so having said all that, I think one of the the lessons we're learning is the importance of lessons. So the ability to rigorously analyze what's going on and work out what it means for us and what it would mean for us in different campaigns around the world. Um, so I guess I'll focus on three or four things. The, the first, I think, really enduring lesson we're relearning is that it, armies, navies and air forces may win battles, but wars are won by nations. And when it comes to global wars or global conflicts, uh, wars are won by alliances. And I think that's just, that's relearning something we, we know, but you need to focus on. So it's a nation, it takes a nation and it takes the commitment of the whole people of a nation or indeed the whole people of an alliance. Um, that's to win a war, but also to deter a war. And of course, if you're fit to win it, you might have a chance of deterring it. So I think that's lesson one. Uh, the second lesson would be very closely related to that. And, you know, this is echoing the long dead Prussian. Uh, and this is about the supremacy of the moral component of fighting power. 
um, and its link uh, in sort of moral component with that concept of national resilience and national readiness. So I think this is all about the, the contract or the compact, you might say, between a nation and her armed forces, um, the sense that armed forces feel that they've got a, a righteous cause. Um, in, the use of, in the case of Ukraine, that's, that's pretty easy for the Ukrainians to realize they've got a righteous cause because the sort of brutal, illegal in, invasion of their country by Russia, you know, gives them that immediate moral cause to rally behind. And that's important for their, for their armed forces and it's important for the nation. But the, the importance of that moral component, I think we are relearning. And while it's easy to focus on the physical component, it's easy to focus on the conceptual component. You know, the ability to stand and fight is, you know, just re we're reminded of that every day. And, you know, it is humbling and awe-inspiring just to see the resilience and determination of the Ukrainian armed forces and the Ukrainian people. So the dominance of the moral component would be would be lesson two for me. Um, the third thing, and again, this is sort of relearning old old lessons, is that the ability to learn and adapt um, quicker than your adversary is the key to winning. And my my first platoon sergeant used to say, "There's only one law of war, and that's learn, adapt, win." So one law to learn, adapt, and win. And we're seeing that every day. And here is, again, where we need to be cautious, because I think in the first 18 months or so of the war, it was undoubted that the Ukrainians were learning and adapting at a faster rate than the Russians. And I dearly hope that continues for um, the future. But of course, Russia often starts her wars badly and then learns. So we need to be really careful and, you know, on the watch for complacency um, that that we keep ahead of the learning curve and we help Ukraine to learn, adapt, and win um, at a faster speed than their adversary. So I think that's thing three. And I think all three of those lessons are just old wine in new bottles. You know, we've known this, um, but it, it takes the horror of, of something you know, like Ukraine to remind us of that. So I'll, I'll come on to lesson four in a second, but I think you were just trying to get in, Vago. Well, uh, yeah, I was going to say, and so that takes us to, uh, and so what from your standpoint is the fourth important lesson? Because those are uh, timeless, but it's astonishing how much we have a tendency of forgetting that. And as we focus sometimes on the technological or the tactical pieces of it, you're right, R R Russia can lose a whole bunch of battles, but still ends up winning the war, uh, which is why you have to stay focused on it. What's the fourth lesson for you, which brings so these elements together? Yeah, so I think the fourth lesson is is newer, and that is just the amazing impact that the exploitation of data has had on the battle space there from the strategic to the tactical level. So I think that's the, the really interesting bit. Now, some people will say that is as old as war itself. You know, we call it data now. Our forefathers called it intelligence or, you know, had their own variety of it. And, you know, the impact of Bletchley Park on the Second World War, I think, is well understood and was very much in focus the other day when UK hosted the, the AI conference at Bletchley Park. But right. uh, I think it's it's that. It's the ability of Ukraine and indeed Russia to exploit data in the battle space, whether that's for logistics or for targeting or for intelligence purposes, um, and whether that's at the tactical level or at the strategic level. I think that is, that, that's going to be what we focus a lot of our attention on, of learning what we take forward from that.
Um, and I want to uh, go into the, the pieces of that uh, in a second. There's a tendency uh, that uh, we in Western militaries have is that, you know, we have all the answers, right? Uh, and the more venerable the force sometimes it tends not to be listening as clearly for lessons that might come uh, from uh, others. Um, you are, however, listening as you try to figure out the best ways to do the integration, the digital transformation, the accelerated in, uh, innovation. Um, and, and few countries can touch what the Ukrainians are doing. For example, their ability to integrate a bewildering array of weapons, for example, uh, along with commercial technologies is, is stunning. What can we learn from them about transformation, right? What are, what are you learning that's, that's helping you transform your organization whose business is transformation and integration, actually? Yeah, so a, a couple of things. I mean, I, I just start with with the people, with the skills. And, you know, it turns out that the Ukrainians have an amazingly digitally skilled uh, populace, uh, some of them in uniform, some of them out of uniform. And, you know, not a lot of people knew just how deeply our digital supply chain ran through Ukraine before the start of the war. Well, well those folk are now with their shoulders to the national wheel, helping their armed forces and their wider nation, you know, learn, adapt and win. So that's that's thing one, just the absolute essential nature of digital skills across the workforce, um, you know, generalist and specialist, uh, mm -hmm. I think is is really important. The second thing is, is of course, that data and valuing that data and, and adopting a sort of data-centric mindset. And you saw this, you know, in the earliest days of the war, um, you saw uh, some of the big tech giants come to Ukraine's aid with 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 some of our international partners to protect our government data, to ensure that even if the Russians had got to Kyiv, that continuity of government could be assured because the data was going to be safe and was not going to be under control of Russia at that stage. Um, equally, on the other side of the foot, you know, you, you saw the Russians going after the Ukrainians' ability to move their data around with the Viasat hack, which, of course, did have an impact on Ukrainian command and control, but it also had some pretty unpleasant collateral damage on the German agricultural um, and alternative energy businesses. So, you know, both sides recognised early on just how critical data and it, our ability to exploit and move it was going to be to this war. So I think um, the importance of data... Um, is is sort of underlined every day and i think you know civilian businesses realized that a few years ago um it's still taking the sort of national security uh and defense world to understand just how important our data is to us but i think those are the, the two bits i really focus on uh, the people and skills and then data and recognizing that if you can move to data centricity it's going to give you advantage in the battle space what are some of the organizational changes you're considering? Because the nature of advantage is fundamentally changing. There's a sense that whatever advantages, you know, that we're going back to, uh, again, a much more competitive space. The, the era of sort of decades of advantage uh, is, um, is, is over. Uh, and one of the reasons the Chinese are so formidable, formidable or terrifying is not only can they adapt quickly, develop quickly, but they can also field at scale. Um, there's no shortage of good ideas. And the United Kingdom has time and again demonstrated that it can come up with a brilliant idea. Uh, and then it can occasionally get it quickly and scale quickly. Um, but we've sort of moved away from being able to do that. What are the changes that you're instituting at strategic command uh, 
to help the whole organism move more quickly and do so in a much more integrated fashion than maybe we've seen in the past, you know, given that the, the, the winning depends on it. Yeah. So I guess it's a combination of, of structural, organizational and, and cultural. So I'll, right. I'll cover sort of three or four of those elements. I mean, firstly, is this recognition of, of the infinite game, the, the fact that we're back into a phase of history where you're going to see uh, competition break into crisis and occasionally into conflict and then back down to crisis and back down to competition again. And that's going to be an everlasting loop of um, highs and lows, but but it's tracking the infinite game that's going to be important as well as marking you know individual inflection points. It goes back to that idea of winning the war, not just fighting battles. So that's that's thing one. Maybe that's more mindset than structure or anything else. Um, so to do that, uh, I think, you know, organizationally, we built um, all of our organizations in the last century, you know, on the vertical. It was the best technology there was in the industrial age to build these large hierarchical, you know, vertically siloed organizations that uh, had great vertical alignment and broadly speaking, you know, command and control mechanisms to get intent from the top down to the bottom and rapid spin cycles to produce cars or to fight wars. Mm-hmm. And that was really good for the 21st century. What we're seeing in the 20, uh, sorry, for the 20th century, what we're seeing in the 21st century is much more need for horizontal integration, as you've alluded to. And so to allow your people, your data to flow on the horizontal across those silos um, to be able to, to maximize the teamwork and maximize the integration across these complex organizations. And again, you've seen this in business for the past you know, five or so years as a major feature, and now it's hitting government and, and including national security and defense. So to do that, because the, the sort of vertical organization is not dead by a long, a long chalk yet, um, to do that, you're developing these horizontal, um, you know, bits of connected tissue, if you like. And, and strategic command, as you said in your, your, your uh, introduction, was set up to do exactly that, to provide the integrating horizontal across UK defense. You know, if you like uh, across the Army, Navy and the Air Force, or as we now talk, you know, across the five domains of, of defense. So, you know, maritime, land, air, cyber, and space, and, and to integrate across them. And there are a number of things we're doing in support of that. I mean, firstly, is what we call in UK government the functions, um, if you like, functions with a capital F. That's things like intelligence. That's things like logistics. It's things like digital and it's things like medical, so those multi-domain or cross-domain functions that can help the integrated force fight together uh, and win together. So that's clearly a sort of organizational thing we're pushing hard. And that's tough because, you know, we built those 20th century silos pretty strong. And they were sort of being enforced, you know, in your case, by sort of Title 10 authorities, in our case, by you know, the Levine model of delegation of, of budgets to the to the single services and so on. And again, you don't want to get rid of all those things, but you do want to build those horizontal integrators so that the whole team can work together. Yeah, so, so we'll, you'll, you'll want to come back to the data and how the data flows on the horizontal. But the third thing I'd mention in relation to that is is leadership. And, you know, I grew up in a world where leadership was, was pretty vertical. It was, you know, the general knew everything and uh, all of his jokes were pretty funny. And we we laughed pretty loud and we jumped pretty high when he asked us to. 
Well, I think leadership's changed a bit. And, you know, we've got a, we've firstly got a bunch of younger folk in defense who, who don't assume the general knows everything or necessarily that his jokes are that funny. And we've got to recognize that difference and actually, you know, celebrate it and get the best out of it. So, I mean, we talk in strategic command of inverting the model or flipping the pyramid. And it's really about getting to a mode of leadership where you realize, you know, life is about setting up your subordinates and your, indeed your successes for success. So it's about you supporting and enabling the tactical front line rather than all about telling them what to do, because it may be that they know better what to do than we do. And it's it's for us to create the conditions for their success. So that's a, that's a different leadership model. I wouldn't want to overstate it. Of course, there's a role for hierarchy and strong leadership still. And sometimes the boss does know best, but I think the balance has changed. And I think the balance between sort of competition within those verticals and collaboration across them has changed too. So you're looking for a different set of leadership skills, a different set of leadership behaviors, so that the whole integrated force, you know, so that the whole is is greater than the sum of its parts. And that's a that's a different mindset. It's a different culture we got to build in in places like defense. Uh, and I, I, uh, it's, uh, I'm going to segue uh, to a second about how. Uh, to do things a little bit differently. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communication sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Um, I, I want to uh, go to doing things uh, differently, right? I mean, one of the hardest things uh, is changing some of those cultural pieces, right? The general officers who think they know everything, uh, you know, it, it takes a, a, a change in character uh, or or at least culture change to get folks to say, well, hang on a second, maybe I, maybe all of my jokes aren't that funny and I ought to be listening uh, to uh, to uh, what what some of these more junior folks have to say. Driving change more quickly and often delivering a deterrence signal can be very different or um, how you do something can also telegraph deterrence, right? Whether it comes to AUKUS, uh, for example, right? Pillar one is nuclear submarines. Pillar two is hypersonics, AI, quantum, and uh, as, as cyber and all that. But ultimately, the question is how you can quickly deliver that capability. How how are the you know when it comes to organizational processes, sir, and outcomes? How, what are some of the changes that we need to be making that not only will accelerate the process, but actually in doing so, transmit a deterrent signal in in how we do it? You know whether it's a whole of government. I mean whatever adjective you want to use. What are, what are the ways to do that? Because in too often it looks like we're trying to do the same things the way we've done them before, hoping for a different outcome or a faster outcome. And then we end up being disappointed that things aren't moving fast. Yeah. So it's, it's a great question. It's probably the question, isn't it, uh, Fargo? So uh, a couple of, I mean, a couple of thoughts, if I, if I knew all the answers, I'd write a book and it would sell billions, but, but uh, <laughs> let me give you a couple of thoughts. I mean, firstly is, and, and I've taken a lot in you know, the past few years, I've been working a lot with our digital teams and I've learned an awful lot of them. You know, some would call that agile, some would call it other things, but but a couple of their catchphrases really, really make a difference when it comes to working at speed and delivering incremental effect at speed and incremental effect to such a scale that it becomes transformative. So it may be little steps, but but when you add it all up, it becomes 
fundamentally uh, fundamentally transformative. So um, one of the one of the interesting things is the ability to work in the open. And by that, I mean to be much more transparent within UK defence of what we're doing and sharing data much more freely and sharing lessons across UK defence much more quickly. It just speeds up your learning loop. And it also, increasing the challenge from others, actually just makes you make far smarter decisions. And instead of hoarding knowledge and you know preventing people from understand, understanding why you took a decision, to work in the open a little bit more invites them in, allows them to critique your decision, and actually the whole organism organism gets faster and better. So that's that sort of thing one. I think thing two would be uh, this great phrase that, that software teams tend to have, which is, you know, think big, start small, be prepared to scale. I think the thinking big, we're, we're pretty good at that traditionally. You know, large hierarchies are pretty good at making strategies. We're not always very good having made the elegant strategy and created the sort of strategic narrative of working out what we're going to do next Monday, you know, which first small step we're going to take and how we're then going to work towards that sort of North Star we laid out in the strategy. And digital teams have to do that because often they've got the outcome they want to get to, but they don't know precisely how they're going to get there. And they've got to experiment and iterate their way through to the uh, to the right sort of technological or software solution. So that think big, start small, and then be prepared to scale uh, as you experiment and learn, or indeed to fail where you find that that technique, that approach didn't work. And again, I think it's fair to say that we in UK Defence and, and, and probably our, some of our big, big friends too, are not very good at failing stuff early on and saying, okay, that didn't work. Let's collapse that project down. Let's reinvest the resources and the people into something that is working. And that's how you build scale. Uh, and instead, all too often, you know, we're trying to be, be strong everywhere. We're trying to keep every project going even though they might have functionally died, you know, a year ago, we're still battering away at it rather than reinvesting that resource, that money, that people, that time into something that's that's working. So I think that's what I'd learned from sort of digital teams about how they drive speed, agility, and scale. Um, yeah, I'll probably stop there because, because I could go on all afternoon about it. Do we as governments understand that right that if you really wanted to accelerate AUKUS there's a whole bunch of right I mean we should make this very easy and have Tom be able to move seamlessly to Washington without export certificates and clearances and everything else and have Vago be able to move uh, to Canberra right yeah. and and have the technology move I mean ultimately is is that actually almost as much deterrent value by rethinking the way we're doing things, as opposed to saying, "Oh, well, wait a minute, Tom needs another twenty-one forms uh, before you know he can settle in Fort Worth or New London or wherever." So, one hundred percent. So, I mean, I talk I talk about this as the sort of rail tracks of AUKUS. So, the the um, slightly unsexy stuff to some people that actually will make AUKUS, but a bunch of other stuff. I mean, uh, the same would apply to our global combat um, air program that we're that we're doing with sort of Japan and Italy. But let me let me focus on AUKUS. So um, the the work in in the US on ITAR rules is actually I think maturing really well. And people are realizing just what a fundamental deterrent effect it will have if we can move intellectual property and physical artifacts much more 
um, simply between, you know, US, Australia and the UK. Um, you've alluded to workforce, you know, the I think there'd be a pro profound deterrent effect from having free movement of engineers, you know, between those three countries where they're working on AUKUS programs. I think that would make people sit up and, and realize we're really serious about this and we're building interoperability and readiness, you know, across those three great nations uh, in a really fundamental way. And our treasuries are happy to forego, you know, tax take or um, our, you know, home offices or, or um, departments are, are happy to forego some bureaucracy to let uh, free movement of skills uh, between those three nations. Um, I could then go on to the sort of infrastructure we build, the digital infrastructure we build between us, the sort of shared cloud at, at various different security classifications that allow us to build digital twins and then move those artifacts and build those artifacts, you know, whether that's a submarine or whether that's a component in, a, in an EW um, system uh, between those three nations. I think that will really make people sit up and, and listen. And, and they don't sound very sexy. They don't sound very deterrent. But I think people who understand the infinite game would understand that those three things, you know, ITAR rules, free movement of labor, um, and some of the sort of digital infrastructure and the sort of even data standards, you know, regularizing data standards between those three nations, those are the rail tracks of interoperability that's going to allow AUKUS to move really fast. And that's going to have a profound deterrent effect if we get it right and communicate it in the right way. Um, I, I've got, uh, I, I want to take you to uh, the digital and the cyber element of it. I'll ask you about AI in, in, in a moment, but it's all actually remarkably conjoined. The key to getting people to think cyber and to think digital is to have sort of an understanding of what it's all about. And, and too often I've had senior leaders uh, tell me, boy, you know, I don't understand the mechanics of it as well as I understand all the other disciplines of, of warfare. Data's rarely in the right kinds of formats. Um, fortunately, there is a cloud infrastructure that's helping, uh, certainly on the security side of things. But bizarrely in the United States, we didn't designate the cloud as critical uh, national infrastructure, curiously. Is there a sufficient, in your view, sort of understanding of the nature of the challenges and the problems so that folks in the entire ecosystem understand at, at, in, in, in the way they have to, um, to improve security, to unlock the benefits of data, right? It, do, do, you, do you have the right people in the right places? And is there that collective understanding absent which progress becomes very tough and everybody looks at Tom going, I think I understood a third of what he said on a good day. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the short answer is no, Vargo. We, we don't have the right levels of understanding through the whole organization. Um, uh, we've got a mismatch between the expectations of our youngsters who, who are coming into the services, having sort of grown up in the 21st century. Um, these folk have never had a checkbook. Uh, many of them have never taken cash out of a cash point simply because everything's done with a card right. or their phone. Um, and then you've got a bunch of dinosaurs like me, you know, who've been in the military 35 years who remember what a checkbook was and and uh, and remember what it was to carry cash in your wallet. So there's a there's a really dangerous uh, mismatch there if we're not careful. And I think the burden is is that on those of us at the at the sort of top end of the hierarchy, firstly to have the humility to realize that what got us here isn't necessarily good enough to keep us here, and that we've got a lot of learning to do. 
um, the the relief is that that doesn't mean we've all got to become uber cool coders or amazing knowledge of AI, but it does require us to have the humility that we need to keep learning. And in particular, we need to keep learning about our leadership and that whilst we don't need to become technologists, we do know we do need to learn how to lead technologists, even if, like me, you know, you're a you're an instrument with a literature degree. You know, it's it's incumbent on you these days to at least be able to speak some of their language and understand, broadly speaking, how you deliver effect and how you deliver speed and scale in the 21st century. And you know, the the good news here again is that I've found working with digital teams and working with cyber. Um, and now sort of tiptoeing into AI, um, actually a lot of the skills that I've developed over the past 35 years about, you know, do you trust somebody? How do you, how do you tell somebody's telling you the truth or whether they're stretching a bit? I mean, you do have those skills after 35 years, but you've got to learn a new different set of signals from people, a slightly different language so that you can leverage those skills and lead those people. And you're probably, you know, I, I remember Colin Powell, that, that great American, I think almost the first PowerPoint slide I ever saw was, was Colin Powell's sort of top 10 points on leadership. And one of them was go on 80%, you know, 80% is good enough. Don't wait for hundred percent. Well, I find working in some of these cutting edge technology areas, you're going on about 30% of knowledge as you alluded to. And, you know, when you're working with 30% of knowledge, you're really using your 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 spidey senses, your gut instinct, to a very very large degree, and if you if you wait to understand eighty percent of it, you're probably going to be too slow. The the opportunity will have passed, the team will have got bored, or the technology will have moved on. So the good news is we have developed those sort of gut instincts. We just need to learn how to apply them and really dial up our willingness to make decisions in areas of really significant uncertainty. But if you wait for certainty, you're just going to wait too long. Um, I, I have two other questions, but I have to follow up on that. Is is the ecosystem and the civil servants and everybody who goes with it and your civilian masters understanding what you're saying and giving you the tools to be able to actually do this stuff because some of this is heretical right it's a program of record it's gotten underway uh, you know i don't i don't want to dredge up programs that haven't gone well but even even programs that have fabulously gone unwell uh continue to stagger on for a long time consuming uh, terrific resources i mean is there do you do you sense with your 35 years experience that the 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 ecosystem in which you live is actually changing as opposed to a whole bunch of people saying what it is they think they ought to be saying to sound clever. So I don't want to be all Pollyanna-ish about this and, and pretend everything's good, Vargo, but I'm a I'm a ludicrous optimist and, and actually I'm generally in, in tough times like we're going through, the, the power of optimism in is in itself quite a helpful thing to have. So just, you know, I don't want to make it sound like it's perfect, but I'll, I'll give right. you two causes for for confidence and hope um, that, that I take from here. So the first thing is for about three years now, we've been running a leadership, a digital leadership learning program in UK defense for the very top of the shop. So for the chiefs, for the four stars, for the permanent secretary, and for a range of sort of three-star generals and uh, civil servants. And that's again, not teaching them to be technologists, 
but bringing to them um, a little bit of detail on the technology, quite a lot of detail on the culture that underpins that technology, and showing them the art of the possible with the technology so they can uh, reconsider how they lead in, in the 21st century. And, you know, these are very, very busy people, just like in the States. You know, Four Stars Diary is, you know, there is not a cigarette paper to put between the meetings in there. So for them to give time every sort of month or six weeks you know, for usually a whole afternoon to come in, to get vulnerable, dare I say it, to have really quite young junior folk come in and talk to them about technology and inviting them to think about how we need to change our systems, change our leadership, change our culture to make the most of that technology so that we can sort of learn, adapt and win. Uh, I think that's pretty impressive humility and and uh, commitment from very senior leaders to to embark on that. Uh, and importantly, one of the things, again, and one of the lessons that maybe I could have spoken more about from Ukraine, we're doing that with industry. So it's delivered right. by industry, one of the big consulting groups who do an amazing job with it. And we deliberately get industry in to come and talk about uh, not just defense industry, but civilian industry, how they've transformed, how they're using data and digital systems to, to transform the way they develop their outcomes um, so that we can sort of draw the parallels and see what that might mean for defense. So just that interaction with industry, with those very senior leaders is, is a really valuable element of that, as well as the humility and commitment. The second thing, I'll go back to people and skills uh, through the through the breadth of the organization. Uh, we've just gone through one of our um, integrated reviews. So our, this is what happens usually quadrennally, but but in this case, it was a couple of years after the last one. Uh, called the defense, you know, the, the integrated review and then the defense command paper refresh, which was the sort of defense element of that wider cross-government thing. Uh, chapter one of that paper was on people and skills. Uh, that's that's the first time, to my knowledge, we've ever started one of those fundamental uh, artifacts of defense policy with people and skills. And, you know, particularly strategic command, our pitch in that, um, in that, you know, was not for more cyber teams or, you know, more special forces or you know, a large amount of defense intelligence or ISR platforms, it was for a fundamental um, re-attack on, on particularly digital skills across defense, but, but you know, skills and, 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 and learning as a whole. And, you know, that gives me great hope that, you know, right up to ministerial level, they recognize that while they could have started off that paper by talking about, you know, things that you can stand alongside and be photographed with, you know, ships or tanks or planes, actually they realized that our greatest edge in the 21st century is going to be about people and it's going to be about skills. Um, now, we've got a lot of work to do to turn that intent into reality. Um, we started some of that. We announced an apprenticeship scheme at DSEI where I, where I last saw you. Um, we've got an amazing series of pilots we're running actually up in the north of England, up near our cyber corridor. We're building around Manchester and working with sort of lo local education authorities, uh, sixth forms, universities, to, to get folk into particularly cyber, but also digital, um, both in uniform in the armed services as civil servants uh, and working with the intelligence agencies to get people who might have never considered a career in defense or national security to, to put their shoulder to the national wheel. So I think those two things, the, the willingness of leaders to be, to be humble and come in and learn and the willingness of the whole organization to put people and skills as the as the very first chapter in that in that important defense policy artifact you know that gives me hope that we can do this there's a long way to go but that gives me hope
uh, Bletchley Park uh, was the home of not just computing, but also artificial intelligence uh, under Alan uh, Turing. Um, and there is a lot of debate. Clearly, uh, you know, Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall, I think, says it best, right? AI can really give you that decisive decision edge. Uh, it can allow, and whoever makes decisions in combat better and faster has a tendency of winning. Our, we are looking to AI and using it responsibly and ethically, but our adversaries may not be using it ethically. Indeed, we suspect they will use it nefariously. What's the right balance here for us to get this right? Because time and again, folks have tried to sort of limit the scope of how weapons are used. And sadly, history, as you've noted, teaches, you know, reminds us of old truths, ultimately. Yeah, so a couple of things. I mean, firstly, um, I did a great session with with former Deputy Secretary Bob Work um, probably a couple of years back now on, on this. And he spoke, you know, really passionately about how AI was going to transform warfare. But he also um, made the point that, that the, the, the battle in the 21st century, the war of the 21st century, the competition of the 21st century is going to be a competition of values, not technology alone. And the way that we use our data, the way that we deploy our technology has to reflect the values that we're campaigning behind and those democratic values, broadly speaking, that uh, we hold dear. And the idea that, you know, you get you get competitive advantage by unleashing your people, not the autocratic idea that you get competitive advantage by constraining your people. You know, that that's fundamentally what we're talking about here. So how we use our data, how we use our technology, it has to reflect those ideas. And that means sometimes we'll have to get punched second, you know, sorry, get punched first and, and, and you know, then respond. And I think that's a price worth paying um, if that supports our values. The, the good news is, though, um, I don't think that's such a that's such a penalty to pay because this is all going to be. Um, right back where we started this interview about how we work with our nations to win, not just how armed forces fight fight battles. And we're going to need to convince our nations that we're doing the right thing in their name and that they're willing participants and that the, the sort of whole nation stands behind us because that's the most profoundly deterrent effect we can have. So I think um, the role of ethics in AI is going to be really important. Um, I would just caveat one thing. So, um, and I've heard Secretary Kendall speak um, so passionately about this. I think decision advantage is really important, but I'd, I'd go beyond that on the impact that data-driven systems, if you like AI, um, is going to have on on the battle uh, the battlefield. And and I talk about three things actually. I, I talk about precision through analysis. So that's that decision advantage, the ability to make better decisions. Um, I talk about speed through automation. So yes, that's quicker decisions, but it's also quicker processes. So it's not just the decision, it's the delivery of that decision. It's the orchestration of the action that is delivered through automation. So precision from analysis, speed from automation. And then the third quality, and, and you don't need to be a soldier, sailor, or, or, or aviator to understand how these give you advantage, is mass from autonomy. And how autonomy is applied, particularly in robotics, um, gives us the chance, particularly small nations like the UK with a limited workforce, gives us the chance to deliver mass in a way that we haven't been able to for uh, for decades because of the limited workforce. 
So if you add those three things together, precision from analysis, speed from automation, and mash from autonomy, I think you'll see how unleashing our data, how developing the use of, of artificial intelligence and machine learning um, is you know, potentially game-changing in that it uncouples the sort of strategic power we can generate from our limited workforce. And that's that's pretty good when we look out, you know, against Russia, the biggest landmass, um, the biggest country by landmass in the world, as the competition with China um, becomes tricky, you know, clearly one of the largest populations in the world. Um, so I think that's why if we get AI and our data-driven systems right, uh, there's lots to be cheerful about. And, and, you know, clearly in getting that right, that means avoiding the hype. It means getting humble uh, and probably means recognizing that the humble SQL query has a lot to do in defense, as well as some of the more advanced sort of um, generative AI tools that we're starting to see and which are, which are hugely helpful getting people excited about AI. But, you know, there's a lot of basics we've got to do first, as well as a lot of the exciting stuff. I hope that answers that question well enough, Fargo. It, it, it does. Let me ask you one 30-second question. How do you get access uh, to the talent you need? Military recruiting is is a challenge. Um, how are you doing it? How are you getting the right skill sets and the right kinds of people? Because at the end of the day, if you don't have the best people, you're not just looking for the best people who are willing to serve in the military. You're looking for the best the nation produces that you can access. How are you guys tackling that bit of the challenge, especially in some of these more technical fields? Yeah, so I think, again, sticking with two, three things um, like any soldier does. Firstly is the mission, Vargo. Talk about the mission. Uh, we have the most amazing problems to solve in defense and national security that you you simply do not get exposure to if you're working in retail or a bank or whatever else. And, you know, I mean, I, I speak about this quite a lot. I usually just sum it up this way. You know, we can let people do things with data that anywhere else would get them locked up. That is amazingly appealing to young and actually, you know, some older folk too, that, that we've got a really exciting mission. We're defending our nation. We're protecting our people. We're helping our nations prosper. And we get to do really cool stuff with data. So that's the first thing, the mission. The second thing is we're an amazing learning and development organization. I mean, UK defense itself, you know, in Europe, I think the army, the British army is the great, is the largest apprenticeship organization in the whole of Europe. I think the Royal Navy is third or fourth and the Air Force is just behind them at fifth or sixth. So you add all that together, you know, we nail apprenticeship schemes uh, more than anybody else in Europe. So we have an amazing learning and development offer for youngsters to come in, learn new skills, and they're going to set them up for life, whether they're in uniform, in government, or outside. So the third thing is we've got to recognize that not everybody is going to do what I've done, which is serve 35 years in the army. Yeah, some of these people are going to come in, they're going to give us three or five years, then they're going to go move off to an intelligence agency. They could move off to a big digital player. They could move off and form their own little SME startup. Uh, they may then come back into government in uniform, out of uniform. So this idea of zigzag careers is going to be pretty fundamental. So we need to make sure that's easy. we got to make sure we we meet them where they're at, not, not assume that they're just going to slot into our old sort of human resource uh, policies that we've had for the past, past 30 or 40 years. So mission, learning and development and realizing some of this, we're going to need to change our model and meet them where they're at and meet their expectations, not necessarily expecting them to, to change completely to where we're at. 
Sir, uh, thanks so much for being so generous with your time. Uh, terrific conversation. Uh, I look forward to welcoming you back uh, on the program in the future. And in the meantime, I hope you have very happy holidays uh, and a very happy new year and, and look forward to being in touch next year. Thanks so very much. Fargo, thank you very much. Really good conversation.